The Bowery Boys episode 174, The History of the Rockettes. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys are brought to you by Audible, the leading provider of audiobook entertainment with over 150,000 titles to choose from. For a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial, go to audibletrial.com slash boweryboys. Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. Today we bring you the history of one of America's most famous dance institutions, the Radio City Rockettes. You said one of America's famous? I, I might argue that they are America's most famous uh, dance troupe. If you ask any tourist that arrives in New York for the very first time and you ask them to name five or ten things that they most associate with New York City... I will bet you that one of the things that they say are the Rockettes. They've come to mean more than just a little, like, high glitzy entertainment. They represent glamour, patriotism. They're sort of the fast pace of the city embodied in a line of beautiful women and the bright lights of Broadway. They're also, of course, a commercial entity. So just right out front here, let's just say this is not like a giant advertisement for the Radio City Music Hall Christmas Spectacular, of which, of course, they are the stars, and this is our Christmas show. This is actually the story, and I want to keep the focus here on the more than 3,000 women who have performed for the Rockettes, and the women and men who have worked behind the scenes since the troupe was created in the 1920s. And just to stand back and put the Rockets in context, because right now we're recording this for our holiday show in late 2014, but up until the late 1970s, these women, the Rockettes, performed four or five, sometimes six times a day at Radio City Music Hall 365 days a year. They were performing in between, before, or after movies. So today we associate the Rockettes with the holidays. But for generations of New Yorkers and visitors coming to New York City, they weren't about the holidays necessarily. They were about going to the movies. They were about glamour on stage. So get in line as we tap through the history of the Radio City Rockettes. So the Rockettes are a premier troupe of dance performers in the Ziegfeld, Busby, Berkeley style, and they have been performing since 1925. They have been part of Radio City Music Hall since 1932. So Tom, how many Rockettes perform during each show? Okay, well, as you know, I've done a little research here, so I, I can tell you that that is sort of a trick question, mm -hmm. because it's changed over the years. So, so in what year are we speaking of? Well, let's just the current show, 2014. I have a copy of the program from, from this year's show that I went to a few weeks ago, and I just counted in the program 80 Rockettes. Now, I know that I didn't see 80 women on the stage at the same time, maybe about 40? You're right. It's been a variable number since their debuts. It's commonly about 36 women in the standard kick line, if you will. Mm -hmm. Do you know how tall you have to be to perform in the Rockettes today? Do because, you know the range of heights? Right, because there's there's a range. Oh. I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, it's like five foot five and a half to 5'10"? Is yeah, that what it is? I have five foot five to five foot ten and a half. Uh -huh. yeah. Even to audition, you need to fall within that range. And the reason is, is that there is this illusion of uniformity, the precision, as they call it. It's an actual optical illusion when you see this phalanx of dancers, and they all look like the exact same height, but in fact, the tallest ones are in the middle, and it sort of goes smaller down the line until the, sh the shortest ladies are at the end. And as they have to high kick up to their eye level, they're all sort of kicking to the same spot. Now, up until the 80s, that illusion of uniformity also was their skin color. It was all very Caucasian until the 1980s, but we'll get into that a little bit later. Now, there was a version of the Rockettes that existed before even Radio City. The troupe actually is older than Radio City Music Hall itself, 
But allow me to set the stage here and give a, a little short history of Radio City, because it's where we're going to spend all of our time on this show. And we do have an entire episode on Radio City Music Hall. It's in the Bowery Boys archive, and we recorded that as our holiday show in 2007. <laughs> oh, my God. Can you God. believe that? It's episode 27, and today in our archive feed, if you listen to it, it actually has little pictures that pop up. We beefed up the show for your maximum enjoyment. But a little brief overview of Radio City Music Hall here. It's, of course, part of the Rockefeller Center complex, which was built and funded by J.D. Rockefeller Jr. Now, what was originally supposed to be a project that was based around a new theater for the Metropolitan Opera, that idea quickly fell through. Luckily, the project was revised to accommodate a brand new tenant, the Radio Corporation of America, which was the radio and later television pioneer headed by David Sarnoff. Rockefeller Center has shopping, office spaces. You know, it's a huge public space, public complex ice skating. There were also two theaters that were planned. One of them, the smaller one, is no longer with us. It was originally called the RKO Roxy and later the Center Theater. Then, of course, the remaining theater, the larger one, is still with us. That's Radio City Music Hall. It is a sumptuous Art Deco masterpiece, a palace for the people, as it was originally called. It still remains the largest indoor theater in the world with little over 6,000 seats. There's probably no other place in America where you can actually immerse yourself in that 1920s Art Deco style more than you can do here at Radio City. And it even informs the shows that you see. And it has sometimes informed even the, the Rockets themselves. Now, hired to oversee the whole building project of Radio City and the entertainment within, well, they turned to one of New York's great showmen of the day. That's Samuel Rothafel, or what his friends called him and all of his fans called him. Well, I think they called him Roxy. Roxy was responsible for some of the finest theater attractions in New York during the Jazz Age and was known for doing grand productions and making these ornate palaces for the entertainment of the masses with productions that were filled with lots of glitz and style. Before he came over to, to Radio City, he actually had his own grand stage that bore his name, the Roxy Theater, on 50th Street between 6th and 7th Avenue. And remember this theater because it comes back into the Rockettes' history. It's very they, instrumental, yeah. Yes. The Roxy Theater opened in 1927, and he was in charge there until he was hired, I guess stolen from his own theater, to work over at Radio City Music Hall. Now, I have to ex explain the kind of shows that Roxy would put on, because this is why the Rockettes would become a big deal for him. But at the, he'd put these on at the at, at, the, Roxy. at the Roxy, right. So it wouldn't, you know, the shows here at the Roxy would not strictly be Broadway shows in the traditional sense. This is a theater where films would be shown, and Radio City would eventually become a film house as well. But he would give you so much more entertainment for your ticket price. I mean, today we're just used to going to the movies and seeing some trailers, and mm -hmm. then, then the movie, and then you leave. That's not how it was. For any given film at the Roxy, there would be an orchestra with 110 members. There would be male choruses, dancing girls, and always that huge pipe organ just like chugging away in between an intermissions. Well, in terms of that orchestra, it makes sense because in 1927, there's still silent movies. Mm -hmm. so, so these orchestras were accompanying... You know, but instead of like back, you know, as my grandmother was watching silent movies in, in Clyde, Ohio, and there was <laughs> Mrs. Meadows, you know, plinkering away at the piano, instead of that, you had this 110 piece orchestra. It must have been fantastic. Like the films may have been silent, but the experience was very, very boisterous. So that's what he was doing over at the Roxy. So when he came over to Radio City, he brought this excessive, palatial, all these superlative acts with him, this excessiveness. No night at the Radio City embodies this overwhelming amount of entertainment, like overwhelming entertainment, than the opening night at Radio City on December 27th, 1932. There were 19 individual acts um, <laughs> on the bill that night, orchestras, singers, dancers, acrobats, impressionists, Opera, ballet, just performances after performances. And some big names, too. Burt Lahr was there. Yeah. Even the curtain itself was an act. Did you see that? There was a musical number called Symphony of the Curtain, where we'd sort of <laughs> dance around to, to music. It was so bloated and received such fairly harsh reviews that it would eventually tarnish Roxy's own career. 
But there was one act on that stage of those 19 acts that went on for five hours, one act that got glowing reviews. That was a line of dancing girls that were known at the time as the Roxyettes. Now, unlike many acts that were on that stage that night on December 27th, they weren't native to New York. They weren't from some exotic European capital. They were from the American Midwest and actually from the state where I was born, Missouri. These are some, this is a troupe that's born in Missouri. Mm-hmm. So at this point, let's trace their journey, how, how they got to the stage at Radio City. So that's 1932, yes. the opening. Mm-hmm. So if we rewind seven years to 1925 to St. Louis, we do have the founding of this dance troupe called the Missouri Rockets. Which sounds kind of like a softball team to me. Well, I think there is a yeah, I think there is a sports team named the Rockets. We're probably the wrong ones to ask, <laughs> but there there are lots of Rockets. Yes. Um, playing ball in places. Well, so there's this noted choreographer Russell Markert who had as a child in Brooklyn. He had studied dance, and when he was a teenager in New York, he saw the Ziegfeld Follies and he saw this act that kind of blew him away called the Tiller Girls. Now the Tiller Girls. So we have to talk about John Tiller and uh-huh. his Tiller Girls, who <laughs> were this English group of dancers organized by John Tiller in 1890 that pioneered precision dance numbers. At this point, I'd also just like to say, you know, he's credited as, as this great pioneer in, in, in precision dance, mm-hmm. and, and he was. But, but when I mentioned this to a very dear French friend of mine, <laughs> to whom I might be married, he reminded me <laughs> that there were also precision dancing and dancing girls happening at the same time well, at in the, France. In fact, the Rockets would often pay tribute to the Can-Can girls of the Moulin Rouge in several of their acts throughout the decades. And then there, and there was also the Folie Bergère. So, right, you had these competing palaces of women, uh, dancing women in Paris in the late 1880s, who were certainly lining up and kicking their heels in the air. But Teller maybe took it to a different level and was able to bottle it up and, and put a little stagecraft into it. Well, there was plenty of stagecraft already <laughs> in the can-can, yeah. but I think that he was, he he probably worked on their tap numbers, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know that the can-can women were tap dancing. Also, the French acts, I think, really relied heavily upon sensuality, and many of the women would wind up with almost nothing on at all, if anything. Mm-hmm. You know, So this was, perhaps the, the Tiller Girls, the photos that I saw of the Tiller Girls makes them look much more... Chased? It looks like they're getting chased all over the place, yes. <laughs> no, they're wearing longer outfits. You know, they look a little bit more, quote-unquote, respectable to a mainstream audience. So John Tiller, with his Tiller girls, they're performing in the 1890s, 1900s, 1910s. Markert sees them on Broadway in the Ziegfeld Follies in the 1920s. Markert looked at these Tiller girls, who were already quite similar, and they were all very pretty, and they did these dances together. But he realized that their dances could be vastly improved if the girls joined forces, if they sort of like locked arms or lined up like they were locking arms. Synchronized. And, precision, mm, performing precision. with mm-hmm. precision. He took it to the next level and also looked for women who were about the same height, about the same weight, the uniform looks. So by the time that Markert forms this group in St. Louis, there were tiller groups, tiller girl groups that were performing all over the place. They were por- performing, obviously, on the road, like here in New York. There were even tiller schools that had been formed. There was a tiller school of dance in New York City. So th- this was a known thing, right? But it still wasn't quite Americanized yet. So in 1925, then, back in St. Louis, we have Markert. He puts together this this group of women, this first American-style chorus line, and calls them his, quote, 16 Missouri Rockets. And they perform between movies at a movie theater in St. Louis. So there were 16 here, the number went up into the 20s, and then it would grow to include... 36 in the 1930s. So the size of the troupe would would grow over the years. And indeed, he would stay on until he retired at a very advanced age in the 1970s. He would stay on to lead and, and still choreograph the Rockettes. That's a really long run, <laughs> if you think about the fact that he's forming these this troupe in the 20s. He, we, he made them his life. 
So he takes them on tour in 1925 for three years around the country, including in New York, where they, they premiered on Broadway in a new musical at the George M. Cohen Theater in 1928 called Rain or Shine. This was their debut in New York City on a stage. Rain or Shine. So what, what was this performance like? I assume it must have had some umbrellas. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know about the umbrellas. I... Went to, you know, the, our favorite place to do any research on these types of things, the New York Public Library for oh. the Performing Arts, yesterday, mm-hmm. and flipped back to the date of February 10th, 1928, to look for the previous night's debut, because this was February 9th of 28, mm-hmm. and there were all kinds of reviews for this this new musical, Rain or Shine. It starred an actor named Joe Cook, who played a versatile circus manager, whose entire troupe walks out on him, forcing him to do all the acts in the show. <laughs> from, from a tightrope act, to he's juggling things, he's shooting a pistol at, at one point. How wacky. In the context of Rain or Shine, the Rockets were the dancing girls who just came out on the stage and would you know do some high kicks. Were the reviews good? Well, the, the reviews of the show itself were kind of all over the place. I mean, the, what kind of was what it was. But they did mention, the, all the reviews that I read mentioned these girls. In the New York Tribune, Percy Hammond wrote, It's a big extravaganza full of pretty dancers, both male and female, dressed in loud clothes as they sing and step to the noisy music of a commonplace score. A ballet known as Markert's American Rockets moves about with the rhythmic precision of clockwork, its legs rising and falling as if they had been wound up. I shall say that most of the ladies are 75% bare, and that such coverings as hide the remainder of them from public inspection are reminiscent. (laughs) So they weren't wearing any loud clothes, (laughs) the Rockets. I I think they basically looked naked. (laughs) All right, so so they had made their debut on the New York stage and and been noticed by all of these these great performers. But they're still the Rockets. The Rockets. They're still yes. the Rockets. Well, and it was this show that Samuel Roxy Rothfeld saw. So he he saw them actually when they were still in in rehearsals for this, and he knew that he had to have them. He even pleaded with Marker to to make another line of them, to just like spin off another group so that he could have them at his big Roxy Theater. So that's where the chorus line headed next for a regular gig. Right. And and so they moved over to the Roxy Theater, and he renamed them, Roxy, renamed them the Roxyettes, and they would perform before, between, or after the movies. And then in 1932, like you said, when he takes over at Radio City, he obviously wants to bring them over as well. The funny thing is, there weren't enough of them. He actually asked to double again the the Ooh. size of the troupe, because that stage at Radio City is so so wide that he needed more ladies to fill the stage. And there's almost no stage larger in the world, so he needed to have one continuous line that has ever been able to perform on a sort of a normal stage in their full lineup. Right. He always had 46 Roxyettes on staff. Ten would be on rotating vacations, so they, but they were still on call. And 36 were always available to dance. Notice I said Roxyettes because their name would not be changed to the Rockettes until 1934, two years after Radio City opened. And after Roxy was gone and they wanted to shake him off a little bit, so they applied a name that was similar to Rockefeller Center and to J.D. Rockefeller himself, and so thus, the Rockettes. So we focused here on the big picture, on on the troupe itself. Why don't we focus on the individual women here for a second? I want to paint a picture of what an original Rockette, who she might have been, what she might have looked like, who she was. And you're talking about the 1930s now, or in sort of the golden age of the Rockettes? Right, in the golden age here, in the 1930s. So remember what we said before, it was 5'5 five, five to 5'10? Five, ten. Mm-hmm. ten and a half. Ten and a half. In the 1930s, the height range was from five foot three to five foot six, and oh. five foot six was the tallest. The average weight, and they actually did have to weigh in, like oh, Price Fighter, yeah. uh, was 110 pounds. Mm-hmm. You had to be, of course, in great shape with great legs. Obviously, their ages were between 18 and 23. So if you were 24, uh-huh. you you were out of there. Mm-hmm. You were like washed up in the Rockettes. 
you have to have, I guess, classic chorus girl demeanor. Meaning, I guess what I'm saying is you could not have a big or sassy personality. Like Mae West could never have been a rockette. Uh, for that would have disrupted the ensemble. Well, because you were acting as a troupe, right? There was no individual. And I think Mae West had a lot of individuality. <laughs> of course, we mentioned earlier the Lily White color scheme that everyone had to be sort of of the same palish complexion as the new york times said in 1936 the rockets must all be of a uniform shade and you can gather that they are virtually candled like eggs before being allowed to appear before the footlights so it was all about uniformity precision these were all mostly single ladies Although many would meet men and uh, would marry men who worked in the radio industry around Rockefeller Center and even here at Radio City Music Hall. But it seems like Markert was pushing them to remain bachelorettes. As much as possible. So they would have no distraction from the chorus line. Well, and also because they were doing four or five shows a day, including after the late show, right after the late movie. Well, so that's the thing that really struck me doing this research is how hard these women worked. So for a new routine, they would start out on a Monday with a 14-hour day training over and over again these new particular acts and would polish it up the next couple days before debuting it on the weekends. The rehearsals would be done in front of mirrors in the huge rehearsal hall that is within the Radio City Music Hall. And sometimes they would rehearse on the roof of Radio City itself, salaries back in the day were $42.50 a week. Four performances a day, six days a week. Which is interesting that they would be working six days a week because the Rockettes, as a troupe, were performing seven days a week. The Radio City Music Hall never never closed. So that just shows you how their vacation schedule worked and how they were rotating in different different members and people were taking vacations, which adds some complexity. If you think <laughs> about the precision that goes into those mm-hmm. numbers, they had to have some versatility as well to be able to be in different spots of the chorus line. And you could never fall behind. Many of the Rockettes lived in women-only residences around Midtown Manhattan and on the Upper East Side, some of them out in the suburbs. I mean, can you imagine, like, late at night, riding the Long Island Railroad and seeing a rockette on her way home, although they were not allowed to wear their makeup or any of the costumes, of course. There were strict rules about that. Now, you mentioned the opening night in 1932 being this kind of crazy 15, 17, 19-act spectacular, mm-hmm. right? But in there was no movie shown that night. No, but no. Th- that quickly um, was d- deemed a failure, and they, they switched <laughs> over, like at the Roxy, to a film format with right. the Rockheads dancing before or after. It became, yeah, it became a, f- a movie house. Like, almost immediately. Mm-hmm. So, so then, what were they really doing? They were doing full-on numbers before and after, or how did that work? Right. They were, sh- they were truncated numbers. You know, we're used to this these 90-minute shows today, but these were like little acts, and so it's weird to imagine like all of these women running out on stage, doing a number for, you know, six or seven minutes, and then leaving the stage, and then having someone else come mm-hmm. out or having the movie begin. Now, Margaret would devise these numbers. They would be based either like on concepts, so like the gay 90s would be like one dance number or like a number based around the concept of fencing. Like mm-hmm. they would all be dressed in fencing gear and or dancing. Or Robin Hood. Or Robin Hood, yes. Or Harlequins. Right. Well, either that or they would be concepts or they would be based around big new songs of the day or songs that were specially written for the show that, pe- that they wanted to get across to the audience. And back to those concepts like Robin Hood or Harlequins or whatever – often those would be tied in to whatever movie was being shown as well. So these weren't just coming out of thin air. I mean, they would dress up like zebras. In the 1940s, this was some bizarre Native American act called Pass the Peace Pipe. Busby Berkeley, who was a choreographer working in Hollywood at this time, it's kind of the same thing, except right. a stage version. Because his dance numbers were spinning out like kaleidoscopic uh, mm-hmm. numbers, and and so are the Rockettes, in, in perfect lines and symmetry, moving around, forming shapes, spinning around, going up and down stairs, all together, all symmetrical. Now, they were not on stage alone. They were not the only women dancing. 
There was also the corps de ballet troupe that alternated with the Rockettes. Now, they presented more classical dance. Um, they would come out and do 15-minute versions of popular ballets at the time. It was a completely separate group of dancers, and there would be a fierce rivalry that would emerge between these two groups of dancers. Because the ballet dancers obviously had a little bit more artistic credibility, mm-hmm. but the Rockettes would be more popular. They were so separated that they actually entered and exited through different doors of Radio City. So if you wanted to see a rockette, you stood outside the 51st Street door. But if you wanted to see a ballet dancer, you stood out by the 52nd Street door. So they would do, of course, Easter shows. And then, of course, they did the very first Christmas show was during a film. But they did their first Christmas numbers in 1933 and December 21st of that year. It was woven around a film called Flying Down to Rio that had a host of entertainments that were Christmas themed. It was during this particular movie that the very first appearance of the Parade of Wooden Soldiers, that would be the most famous Right. Rockettes number. I think they still perform it today. It's Yes, it's very much the sort of big moment in the show right now. And it was during that same film that they debuted another famous number of theirs, The Living Nativity. Right, and The Living Nativity is interesting because they actually don't do their typical Rockette routine. I didn't even realize... I mean, I guess it's obvious when you're thinking, when you reflect back upon it, but when you're watching the show, you don't really realize that those are the Rockettes today in the nativity scene, because obviously they're not coming out and like high kicking to Bethlehem. <laughs> you know, it would just be rather bad taste. Yeah, that's not in the scriptures, I don't think. No, not even in the good news version. <laughs> but but they're just they're just dressed as the people coming to visit the Christ child. So it's more tableau. Right. They are just performers in the nativity scene. Now, in 1937, the Rockets achieved one of their greatest triumphs, I would say. They were victors at the Gala de Danse at the Paris Exposition. So this chorus line of 46 women, it was the 36 dancers and the 10 alternates, traveled over to France that year and performed in this dance competition. So this is kind of a big deal because the, yeah. the, they're inspired by the French dance movements of the late 19th century. And here they are performing for them. But the line was so long. I mean, it was they performed on the biggest stage in the world. It was so long that the stage in which they performed at the Grand Palais had to be extended specifically for the Rockettes. And so... Which every Frenchman working on the set <laughs> gleefully did. It was deemed so important that the prize was officially presented back home by J.D. Rockefeller himself and the French Consul General, who claimed that this was, quote, another link in the chain of friendly acts that have existed between the United States and France since the birth of your nation. To praise the Rockettes would be commonplace, for their fame has flown across the ocean. A lovely tribute from France to the Rockettes. So, and it underscores a certain Americanness that the Rockets are now representing. And this was over 75 years ago. The Rockets would grow from this moment from becoming a great and glamorous decoration of the stage to becoming icons of New York City itself. We'll explore that story after the break. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. 
In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. And now, back to our show. Okay, so before the break, Greg, you took us right up until, like, the end of the 1930s, this golden era. And I would say that probably the golden era goes on for many decades. I would say, yeah. Yeah, because they were performing again four or five shows a day for about 50 years. And we obviously don't have time to go into all of the big movie premieres that they were performing around. But let's just say if there was a big movie premiere at Radio City, they were performing before or after. And they had probably some kind of a a program of their own that tied into the theme of the movie. But the movies changed so frequently. And so if they have numbers that are tied to the movies, Mm -hmm. thus they must have just gone through an extraordinary number of productions, right? And costumes, yes. They were also always performing three shows, really. They knew three shows at once. They knew the show that they were in, they knew the next show that was coming down the pike, the next movie, and then they knew the one after that because they already had the film schedule down. It was still an exhausting amount of dancing that they had to do. Right, and they were also performing after that late show at night. So, you know, sometimes it would be midnight or later and the Rockets had just wrapped up their their day's work. Some of them could sleep right there in Radio City where they had a 26-bed dormitory and they could just catch their Z's there. It was almost like working at Google today, you know? They gave them everything they needed. They didn't need to go anywhere. But that's you don't so- need a home. <laughs> that's something very ominous about that, though. Google or the Rockettes? <laughs> well, let's just right now focus on the Rockettes. So if we're talking about the 1940s, we're obviously talking about World War II. And, and when the U.S. got involved in the war in late 1941, so did the Rockettes to... A certain degree to putting on patriotic shows on stage, but they also joined the USO, which was the war effort to entertain the troops fighting abroad and also training here at home. So the Rockettes, or a smaller subgroup of them, would venture out to perform uh, in various parts of the country, and then throughout the war, they'd, they'd head overseas, and the smaller group of of ladies would perform for the troops and sort of high kick and lift their spirits. They would also join Eleanor Roosevelt in in promoting war bonds. They had a war bond rally at Madison Square Garden. They did a commercial, a promotional campaign for war bonds in 1944. And they also incorporated, rather commercially, the war into uh, their acts on stage. So you'll see photos from the 1940s of rockets dancing around tanks or dressed as sailors, um, singing and dancing in naval outfits. So by this time, they're already becoming a symbol of a certain American ideal. I mean, these weren't individual singers or performers. They weren't people that were actors promoting themselves. It was an entity that represented a certain American prosperity and beauty. And probably was kind of reassuring to audiences back home that things are going to be okay. You know, if these beauties that we knew before the war are still smiling and high kicking, even during this tough time, we're going to get through this. 
They seem kind of custom made for the 1950s, don't they? This wholesome family entertainment with like a little bit of sizzle on the side. Yeah, and I guess that is what you would have experienced if you had emerged from a commuter train in 1958 into Grand Central Terminal uh, and looked up. You would have seen a giant 60-foot mural, 60-foot mural stretching across the main hall of Grand Central with the Rockettes, the whole lineup. This was called the Colorama, which was a giant photo banner that was, that was produced by Kodak. And it was tied into an actual show they did called Colorama, where each of the dancers was dressed like a different color palette. It was like a bunch of paint swatches just sort of milling about the stage. And again, when you say it, it tied into a rocket show, it oh, tied, tied into, into one of their numbers. The numbers at, during a film, right, right. Right. You say they were dressed up as these different colors. You know, it would be irresponsible of us to talk about the Rockettes at any length without talking about their outfits mm-hmm. and their, the amazing costumes and designers that worked on those. I would say very notably from the very beginning, there was Vincent Minnelli. Now, Vincent Minnelli, who's married to Judy Garland and would become the father of Liza Minnelli, he designed so many of their original costumes. He designed for quite a while costumes and sets for them. But did you know that it was Minnelli who designed those um, toy soldier costumes? The original toy soldier the ori- costumes, which are still, you know, the ones that they, they make today are still mm-hmm. based on those original drawings. Now, during the 1960s, I don't know how to say this, things got very... Liberace-ish, more flamboyant, <laughs> Las Vegas showgirl mm-hmm. style, even kooky. One of their numbers was had a backdrop of a UFO with the Rockettes dressed as Martian goddesses. At one point, they had a number where they dressed like bunnies in the mid-1960s. Very a little, playboy. Yeah, a little evoking Hugh Hefner. One number with mini trench coats and a spy-themed number. So the 60s were here in more ways than one. Of course, because now there's a bunch of cultural changes. There was a greater understanding uh, among the dancers as they were comparing their own wages and realizing that they weren't making enough money, that the that the structure, the pay structure was still very much stuck in the 1940s. One source I read said that a standard dancer in the Rockettes would make $99 a week in her first year of dancing. Today, that would be about $750 a mm-hmm. week before taxes. And you get a little bit more the more experienced you were. But, but this is in the period when they're doing several shows a day. Not the, getting overtime. No, and the rehearsal periods were unpaid. And they sometimes had to work five to six weeks without a day off. So in 1967, the Rockettes and some members of the ballet troupe and some of the people in the background of Radio City Music called some of the stagehands, they went on strike demanding a pay raise of 40%. Now, you can imagine a picket line in front of Radio City Music Hall of all of these performers, these and gorgeous these, performers. And these are ladies who know how to get oh, in line. Oh, yeah. I mean, this wowed and dazzled the press, who obviously followed this quite closely. It was a novelty. People tripped all over themselves to, to buy the striking rockets, like a meal, lunch, and coffee. They were always sort of taken care of. Regular police protection. Celebrities. Every day there'd be like Tony Randall, Sammy Davis Jr., Pearl Bailey would swing by and give their supports the press of course had their share of slightly demeaning descriptions of the strikers here from the new york times september 19th quote the prettiest picket line in town marched in front of radio city music hall yesterday there were blondes brunettes mini skirts and flashing false eyelashes unquote wrote a male (laughs) journalist The strike went on for almost a full month until October 12th, 1967, and they mostly succeeded in their goals, including getting some pay for limited rehearsal time, which was good. It's funny because today when you look through the Rocket books and through the official history, when they get to this part in the 1960s, they they have a spin on it. I don't know if you noticed that, but they say things (laughs) like, and this is a quote, they are a sign of female and athleticism and were always ahead of their time. So they they spin <laughs> wink, this wink. sort of mm-hmm. era as, look at them, even since their debut in 1925, they were already, they were very advanced in women's rights. So it's interesting to know the, the other side of the story, you know, that mm-hmm. even if they were seen as advanced or 
are seen as advanced now that they really they had to push for the rights mm-hmm. in the in in the sixties. Unfortunately, what follows the 60s is the 1970s. And so a few things kind of happen here at Radio City Music Hall that spells near doom for both the Rockettes and Radio City Music Hall. Of course, you know, first of all, New York itself is kind of falling apart financially. Number two, there's a certain presentation of the Rockettes flies in the face of modern feminism of the day. You know, now you have icons like Mary Tyler Moore. The image of beauty and sexuality is changing. And the costumes would kind of try to get with the times, but it finally seemed as if it was not to be a pun, but to seem rather out of step with the time period. While that's also going on, something's changing in entertainment itself because these were dance numbers that were being performed next to films big dramatic numbers, all these routines, but you could only do them with a certain kind of film. Radio City, by the 1970s, was playing family films and musicals and lighter fare. The Godfather did not play right. at Radio City Music Hall. These were G-rated films. <laughs> yes. Radio City Music Hall's in The Godfather, but The Godfather was never in Radio City Music Hall. Mm-hmm. These flashy numbers just didn't make sense anymore with the new kinds of films that were coming out, so people stopped coming. And then finally, of course, all of this adds up to these productions being way too costly. Uh, The Radio City was now leaking income. They could no longer afford the dancers, this large number of dancers in all their costumes and props, or even to operate this gigantic theater. Hmm. So by 1978, Radio City Music Hall almost closed for good. There was a great outcry in the community. Had it closed, there actually would have been nothing to save it from being destroyed, like so many great theaters before it. Well, right. I was just going to say, think of all of the other places. Look at the Roxy. Now, luckily, 78, This in this very same year, this was when the Supreme Court heard the case Penn Central Transportation Company versus New York City. This was a landmark case about landmarking that essentially helped save Grand Central Terminal. So a cry went out to save Radio City Music Hall, and everyone went out of their way to urge the Landmark Preservation Commission to landmark the interior of Radio City. The Rockets themselves headed down to City Hall and performed a kick line right in front of the City Hall building so that when all the politicians went into work, and this is what greeted them that day. So... Sure enough, it was eventually landmarked. The old version, I would say, the old era of Radio City, uh, was closed in April 12th of 1978, and it was newly renovated, and a new revamped Radio City opened by 1979. Gone were the movies. Mm -hmm. They would no longer show films. And this was the first time when the Rockettes would be a show in themselves. They would start crafting 90-minute extravaganzas, the first in May of 1979 being called A New York Summer, which reviews called a multimedia blitz of color, song, and dance. These new Rockettes, as they were sometimes called, would still have these precision lines, but they would also be broken out with solo performances and smaller breakout groups that they would do various routines. And this is the same era then, so post-1979, where we would have the Easter Spectacular and also the Christmas Spectacular. Right, that very same year, which would now be at this time a standalone show, 90 minutes, with the Rockettes as the principal stars of the show. But it's funny because so many of the people would buy tickets to see these shows would already be familiar with the Rockettes Mm -hmm. because they had seen them before, say, Mary Poppins or whatever. And they, they'd even be familiar with some of the numbers, like the Toy Soldiers. So I have to think that a certain bit of nostalgia is now coming into play with these Rockettes shows, Absolutely. Right? Because it is a lot of people like, I remember seeing these dancers when I saw this classic movie. Now you could just sort of luxuriate in the beauty and the talent of the Rockettes in these shows. We are now at the 1980s, and as the Rockets have you know, addressed other antiquated features, there's another one that needs to be addressed. And it's a biggie. <laughs> Yo, yes. That line of uniformly sized Caucasian women 
was beginning to not resemble the diverse audience that was actually coming to watch it. Beginning? What are you talking about? Well, there had uh, been a diverse sure, audience sure. for of decades. Of course. But the need to diversify rose to sort of such obviousness right. by the 1980s. We, we were joking earlier about like, oh, tans and shade uniformity. But let's be honest. This was an excuse to keep dancers of other races out of this. I mean, let's not sugarcoat this. There was a certain prejudice behind that decision as well. Finally, in 1985, they hired a Japanese dancer by the name of Setsuko Maruhashi, who was inspired, by the way, to, to audition for the Rockettes after seeing a program with them and Liberace. And she got so inspired by them that she's like, well, I think I can do that. Today, she jokes, actually. I read a funny interview with her. She's a fascinating lady. She, today, her the minimum height, she barely got in by like a half inch because mm-hmm. she's, a, she's a shorter lady. And she would be entirely too short to be a Rockette today. She's like, hmm. I just couldn't make it today. In 1988, they hired their first African-American dancer named Jennifer Jones, and she had a very impressive debut during the Super Bowl halftime show. These are the days when the Super Bowl halftime show, Tom, could feature dozens of grand pianos, Rockettes doing tap dance numbers to the song Something Great. So this was a it sounds amazing. <laughs> and, and they would be exposed. They would be seen by a billion people around mm-hmm. the world. This was her notable debut. So this idea of skin uniformity is not an issue now. The thing is, the look of the Rockette and the costumes is already so synchronized that just seems kind of like a, a silly thing. To, to think about it's more beautiful it's it's more new york you know not only because everyone can have an opportunity for every girl to grow up and be a rocket if she wants to but it's actually just a beautiful thing to see it's perhaps an unrealistic symbol of course you know having different skin tones on a stage it doesn't mean that everything is harmonious in new york in the year 2014 but but it's now come to represent new york on a different level than it ever did 50 years ago the the rockets yes which is interesting so you bring up in i think that the point you make is beautiful i find it very interesting not to veer off topic a little here (laughs) you're looking at me worried Hmm. um but i find it interesting that the rockets seem a little bit insulated from criticism Mm -hmm. you know we're talking about them like they represent America's great dreams and hopes, you know? <laughs> They're a commercial dance troupe. Oh, yeah, yeah. You, pay, you have to pay to see them. They're not free. Right. And they do corporate tie-ins, and there's product placements and the whole thing. Now, these are very talented people, but they are a commercial enterprise. And it is just somehow interesting, as I was you know, reading around, because the last part of the show, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the Christmas Spectacular. Mm-hmm. And reading through recent reviews of this, this year and last year, you know... Even people who are critical of the show throw in these disclaimers like, well, you'd really have to be a Scrooge to find fault with the the Rockettes or with the Christmas Spectacular. In general. Yeah. And, and I just find that kind of curious that, they're, <laughs> that they occupy this place that seems to be um, insulated by mm-hmm. some mm-hmm. from criticism. And it's because, like you said at the beginning of the show, there are people who just wait for this moment where they go to the Christmas show every year. They come... Tourists especially come to the city or or they've developed a tradition of seeing the Rockets. They're yeah. such a part of people's experience in New York. It's drenched in the nostalgia and the magic of and the romanticism of New York. And, and which makes it very hard to then criticize or be critical of as you would a normal Broadway show. Mm-hmm. You know, I saw the show two weeks ago and I saw the show when I was... Also, when I was 17 years old and visiting in 1990 or whatever from Ohio. And I saw the show in 2006. So I've seen it three different times in my life. Mm -hmm. And I remember in 1990 being just really bowled over because the show was New York. It was just like, you know, sitting up in the top balcony, fresh from Ohio, visiting the city. It was just like, it was the most New York thing I could possibly imagine. And here were chorus lines and there were all kinds of illusions being performed on stage and enhanced with special effects and such. It was amazing. The Radio City Christmas Spectacular, which was originally called, when it debuted in 1979, The Magnificent Christmas Spectacular, 
it, it features not just the Rockettes, but 140 performers. So you have dancers, you have singers, you have roles, yeah. ice skaters, the whole thing. And they're all sort of jumbled together like an ambrosia salad, right, <laughs> on stage. You've got the Rockettes doing amazing numbers, tap dance numbers. They do a great routine to the 12 Days of Christmas. Of course, their toy soldiers routine is literally a showstopper. But then there's a lot of other things that are swirling around it because, of course, they can't perform for 90 minutes. You oh, know, sure. Yeah. They can't do the whole thing. They'd be completely exhausted five times a day. Can you imagine? So they've got this other thing going on with Santa Claus. And then there's another cast of dancers who just kind of frolic around on stage. There's also a group of Broadway-style singers that kind of sing from the sides and sort of skip down to stage. They're ice skaters, as I mentioned before. A Christmas sampler is what it sounds like. With it no, is. With like one no of those chocolate of, packs, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. and you don't really know what you're going to get next, but you just keep eating. <laughs> and then at the end, you know, there's it sort of snows. In, in I hope I'm not spoiling anything here, but there's some snow that comes down. This is not a Broadway audience. It's a different kind of audience. This is something that has to appeal to many, many more people. This is one show that has to appeal to children, to a great swath of the American public who might be visiting, and, get this, also people from, obviously, all over the world. Mm -hmm. When I went, I went with my in-laws, who are French, and who have a very hard time seeing anything on Broadway because they don't really speak English. Right, they're not going to Book of Mormon, but they might go to the Christmas Spectacular because it speaks in different kinds of languages. And because the tickets were easier to get. (laughs) Yes, well, that's true. But they, they loved... They loved the Christmas Spectacular. They couldn't get enough of it. And one more point to keep in mind. The Christmas Spectacular has to compete with New York City in Christmas time. So when these people go in to that auditorium, what they have seen is New York City in, at its most beautiful, at its most festive, where every place is done up to the nines in high-production holiday decorations everywhere in mm-hmm. Midtown. So what they have to produce in a show is something that is even grander than what you can get for free out here on the streets. And they do their best to borrow from that and to actually insert themselves into the equation of being a part of New York at Christmas time. But it does sell this idea of the Rockettes very much being an integral part of the Christmas tradition in New York City. So to the Rockettes of past and present, we salute you. This show is dedicated to the more than 3,000 women who have made their way through the course line of the Rockettes from 1925 to today and beyond. And with that, we finish for now this History of the Rockettes. <laughs> Please visit the blog, BoweryBoysPodcast.com, where I will have some of the most beautiful subjects I've ever put on the blog. Certainly, many photos of the Rockettes' glorious history and several photos of the Radio City Music Hall itself. That's BoweryBoysPodcast.com. And please check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And finally, I want to extend happy holidays and a Merry Christmas to you and safe travels over the holiday season. Thank you, Greg. And the very same to you and to all of our listeners. Thank you for joining us this year and in the year to come with the Bowery Boys. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon.